If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, I'm going to read verse 1 through verse 11. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 through verse 11. This is referred to as the triumphal entry. That's not a bad uh, title for it. Uh, But as you're going to see as we move through this text of Scripture, something really, really big is going on in this portion of God's Word and in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And may God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to humble ourselves before you, confessing our sins to you, thanking you for the swift cleansing river of Jesus' blood that makes us clean and whole. We thank you for Jesus' sacrifice. We thank you for Jesus' triumph. We thank you for his presence here amongst his people. And Lord, we also thank you for the spirit of God that's promised to us to guide us in all truth. And as we come to Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 through 11, we need his presence to guide us. Lord, I ask that there will be spiritual transactions that will take place amongst your people here this morning. I pray that those who are not in Christ will come to Christ and follow our King. I pray for those who are shaky in their faith, that their faith would be strengthened because of what we see here in Matthew 21. And those who are bold in their faith, that we be comforted and rejoice that they know the King of Kings. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. My friend Larry is English. Several years ago, we were visiting, and in my typical brash American way, I said, Larry, what's with the Brits' fascination with the queen and the monarchy? Without blinking, he leans over the table like this. Warren, we love the queen. We love the monarchy. As I went home, I was thinking about the, re- the reverence he had for a human monarch. 
The Bible says that we live in a universe that's ruled by a monarch. The Bible says his name is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do I show him a greater reverence than my friend Larry shows a human monarch? If I was to be honest and confess before you, I'm far too casual in my relationship with Jesus Christ. I relate to him in a far too familiar and ordinary way. In contrast, the angels behold him and worship him. Even the demons in his presence shriek out and cry out in terror. After Peter has the great catch of fish, he falls down before Jesus Christ at Jesus' knees. And he says, depart from me, for I am a sinner. And then in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, John the Revelator sees the regnant risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he passes out with fear. All these created beings revere and worship Jesus Christ, which begs the question that I want you and I to ask ourselves, how do I deepen a heart that fears and reveres Jesus Christ as these beings do? Well, the answer, I think, partly is found in the passage just read to you, Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 through 11. This passage is really about the messianic reign of Jesus Christ. It's the declaration of the messianic reign of Jesus Christ. He has come to bring salvation to his people. And in this passage of scripture, Jesus' kingship is put on display. In fact, we see all sides of the king in this passage of God's word. And I am convinced that if we know these sides of the king, we will revere Jesus more deeply in our hearts. We will be more reverentially fearful, joyfully fearful, or in in the Psalm 2 verse 11 passage, rejoice with trembling before our Savior Jesus Christ. So our goal today is to see all sides of the Savior, but we begin with the first side of the Savior. Here it is. Jesus is our king of peace. Jesus is our king of peace. Let's go back to chapter 21. Let's look through verse 21, verse 1 through verse 3 and 4. I just want to repeat it because it's worth repeating. These are very important details to the story of the triumphal entry. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now notice down in verse 4, all this, so Jesus is being very deliberate here. He's not being random. He's not being occasional. He's specifically focused on getting his disciples to get the colt and to get the donkey and bring them to himself. Why? Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, 
the fall of a beast of burden. Ancient Middle East historians have told us that when a king entered a city on a horse, it was for the purpose of war. When a king entered a city on a donkey, it was for the purpose of peace. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem was to bring peace to God's people. It was to bring peace to the world. The disciples' response and the crowd's response shows us they're welcoming him as a king, a king on a donkey, a king coming in peace. The crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Everyone welcomed him as the king of peace. Well, how how is coming into Jerusalem going to be a display of his kingly peace that he brings? Well, that part of the story comes at the end of the week. Because you all know what happens at the end of the week. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is crucified. And three days later, Jesus rises from the grave. When Jesus is coming as the king of peace... He is coming to die. And not just to die, he is coming to give his life as a ransom for many. And not just as a ransom for many, he's coming to die an infamous criminal death on the cross, which the scriptures predicted. He's coming to die. I've always tried to non compartmentalize my life, but I'm a man. And a man compartmentalizes their lives. Ladies, you can do some multitasking stuff uh, because you can just, just flit around in your minds. Oh, no, I've got to compartmentalize myself. Well, I'm thinking to myself, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and there's great joy. People are rejoicing. The King of Peace is coming. The promised Messiah is entering. And I'm thinking, okay, I know how this story ends. Jesus knows how this story ends. He was telling the disciples all along, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. He was telling the disciples all along why they didn't see that coming. I don't know. But they're shocked when he's arrested and they flee from him when he's then put on the cross and dies. Jesus does not compartmentalize his life. He is experiencing joy as the king of peace. I say, how do you know that, Warren? Have you gotten the mind of Jesus? Yes, I did. Well, when? Hebrews chapter 12. Who for the joy set before him endured the shame and suffering of the cross. Jesus is experiencing the whole orb of human emotion as he's coming into Jerusalem to die for sinners. And he's doing it with great joy. He's coming as the king of peace. So you know what happened at the cross. You understand what happened. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. I want you to see what happened. This first part, verse 5, is is really important. We we can just follow it down a little bit. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1, I'm sorry. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse Eight. No, I don't have my reading glasses on. Verse 6. 
For while we were still weak at the right time, what does it say? Say it out loud. Christ died for the ungodly. When Jesus hung on the cross, and you remember there's two, there's two moments that stand out in my mind. The first moment is he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God is a pure eyes and look upon iniquity. Jesus is upon the cross. God turns away and he puts his judgment and wrath upon Jesus Christ. A wrath and judgment that should have rightly fallen upon us. But Jesus is our substitute. That's why we call what he did a substitutionary atonement. Jesus hung and died and was punished in our place. Why? To bring peace between us and God. Casual reading of the history books will tell you there has been no peace between us and God since our first parents walked out of the garden. It's been warfare. But Jesus came to Jerusalem to sue for peace in the death and his dying. And then take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Because this peace is like a ripple when you throw a rock into a calm pond and the rippling effects move across the pond. Chapter 2, verse 14. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, which has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances. He is our peace. That means he's broken down the walls that separate us from us. He brought peace to one another. And he's talking specifically about the partition that existed between Jews and Gentiles. They had nothing to do with each other. They were uh, far from each other. And Jesus comes and dies on the cross, and he breaks down that wall of partition so that Jews and Gentiles can now be brothers and sisters in Christ, in glory. Jesus' peace brings peace to humanity. So as a pastor, I have witnessed um, many times of counseling. Um, I would say that 90% of the counseling I've experienced is counseling related to broken families, broken marriages, uh, broken families with children, uh, now adults who are still wounded by what they experienced in childhood. And those families are so divided and the wounds are so deep. Christ came to restore and to reconcile people together. And he's still doing that work. It's a work that might need to be done in your own life and in your own family. But that's what he came to do is to bring peace between us and God and between one another. But not just those two areas of life did he come to bring peace. So take your Bible and turn to John 14. John 14. I should have told you that you should have your seatbelt on because we're going on a journey through God's word. And, you know, if you've, 
I don't know if I, I, you may have heard me once or twice. I don't know, but I just cannot just be in one verse of scripture because it's all connected. And so, anyway, so 14, 14, um, and I'm looking at um, verse 27. Notice what Jesus says to his disciples, to you and me. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Peace I give to you. The Greek word is irene, and its most literal interpretation is tranquility. I've come to bring tranquility. It can also be translated calmness. I've come to bring calmness. Or uh, it's peace as well. I've come to bring peace in your hearts. Before I got or after I got here and I was in the prayer room and we were praying, um, I, was, I was confessing to the Lord, what I'm doing right now makes me very nervous. I get so many butterflies that I feel like I'm going to fly away. And I, I, I just, oh, Lord, why, am, why did you call me to do this? Because I don't want to do this. Get someone else to do this. And, and I'm, I'm looking to experience irene, tranquility and calmness. You remember the passage in Philippians chapter 6, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, um, where it says, in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the, and the what? And the peace, irene, the peace of God, which surpasses what? All comprehension shall guard your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. The word guard is the word for sentinels. Sentinels are set before us and around our minds and around our hearts so that we could live in God's peace. So Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that day was to bring peace between us and a holy God that we had offended and walked away from, peace amongst ourselves to bring reconciliation and forgiveness to one another, and peace within our own hearts. This is the side of the king we see presented for us in Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 through 4. Jesus is our king of peace, which brings us now to the second side of the king. Jesus is our prophetic king. Go back to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at verse 4 and verse 5. By the way, this is a... It's a prophecy from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah was given this prophecy 520 B.C., uh, 500 years, 500 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. Zechariah is given this prophecy that the Messianic king would come to Jerusalem and he would come riding on a donkey. And here's the prophecy. We've read it once. We'll read it again. This took place to fulfill what was spoken of the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. God was fulfilling his prophecy, the ancient prophecy. It's interesting, if you go back to that Zechariah chapter 9, I won't have you go back to that passage of Scripture. It starts off in verse 1 of chapter 9, Zechariah chapter 9. It starts off, God pronounces judgment upon Israel's enemies. 
judgment, judgment, judgment. Gets to verse 8. God says to Israel, I will protect you. He's always saying this to his people. Do we believe that? Do we believe that he's protecting us? Or do we feel like we're thrown to the wind, a whirlwind, and we're just being rustled all over the place? Or do we feel that God's protecting us? Then he gets to verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 9, and this is the prophecy, the one I just read to you, that your king is going to come to you riding on a donkey. The day on, that, on the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the crowds were witnessing fulfilled prophecy. God delivered on his prophecy. Did you know that there are 55 Old Testament predictions regarding just Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection? There are 55 predictions regarding Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection. According to the Jesus Project, there are more than 300 prophecies in the Old Testament regarding Jesus Christ. Here's a quote from the Jesus Project people. These prophecies are specific enough that the mathematical probability of Jesus fulfilling even a handful of them, let alone all of them, is staggeringly improbable, if not impossible. What we have here is a miracle, the miracle of prophecy, that what God predicted way back then has come to fruition. Jesus is our prophetic king, the predicted Messiah, which means, therefore, and this is where if you're, if you're pumping iron, if you're, you know, pumping, you know, your muscles up a little bit. Here's really where this passage takes you. That Jesus fulfilled this obscure prophetic passage from Zechariah as he entered Jerusalem that day. And that there are over 300 passages of scripture that all relate to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. That 55 of them relate to his birth, death, and resurrection and they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, means, you know where I'm going with this? The scriptures are truth. The scriptures are the gospel truth. The scriptures and the truth of scriptures are certain. They are absolute certain. Our confidence in God's word is unshakable. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all true. Now, I don't know how your faith uh, wrestles with every life. My faith wavers. Some days I'm strong. Other days not so strong. And you know what I have to go back to? Is the certainty and truthfulness of God's word. I don't know when you study the word of God. Is it in the morning? Is it in the afternoon? Is it in the evening? But this you have to feast on. It is the bread that supplies the strength we need with a wavering faith. And that I know that Jesus comes into Jerusalem fulfilling an ancient prophecy, an obscure prophecy at that, means that I have certainty that what I'm reading here, wherever it's at, Genesis to Revelation, is the literal word of God. 
You remember that moment in Jesus' ministry? He's got masses of people surrounding him. And he's preaching to masses of people. And then he throws this out. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciples. Do you remember how those Jewish people took that, those words? Man, this is cannibalism. I can't take this. And the crowds began to leave Jesus and disperse. The disciples stayed and he turns to them and he says, are you going to leave also? And in John 6, verse 68, Peter has these golden words. Where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is where we feast. This is, this is where we live. This is what we consume regularly and daily in order for our wavering faith to be a strong faith. So Jesus is our prophetic king. Jesus is our king of peace. Jesus is our prophetic king. And now we get to the third side of the Savior in Matthew chapter 21. Here it is. Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the promised king. Go back to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And uh, start at verse 9. Matthew chapter 21, verse 9. So you got the crowds that are coming in with Jesus. And, you know, historians, how do they know this? I don't know, but I'll, I'll just take that they're, they're right on this. Jerusalem had maybe about 250,000 people. When it came to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which was, that, was the holiday being celebrated, it could swell up to a half a million people. In other words, you're thinking to yourself, it's 494 at France Avenue in Minneapolis. It is packed. None of you have been on 494 on France Avenue. So if you had, you know what I'm talking about. It's packed. And you're just rubbing shoulder to shoulder with people. And, and, and so you've got these crowds that are ahead of Jesus. Then Jesus mounted on the donkey and the, and, the, and the colt. And then behind him, another large groups of people. And notice what they're doing after they lay their cloaks down and cut the, cut the branches down. They begin to shout. And here's what they shouted. By the way, Hosanna, it means help. God save us now. Help. Help. God save us now. That's basically the interpretation. Uh, they began to shout, Hosanna to the son of David. You know, and I, I don't know you parents, you young, you young parents. I don't know how you read the scriptures, uh, but don't read the Bible boringly. Hosanna. Yeah, to the son of David in the highest. You, you miss out on the moment. Uh, you you got to, you got, and my kids, when they saw these kind of, so we'd sit down on the couch and they'd all be gathered around and I would read the scriptures. And, and they knew that there was these certain passages, like when Jesus stills the storm, be still. And they knew it was coming, so they'd plug their ears because I would raise my voice. But you got to raise your voice. You cannot, you cannot read this in a manby-pamby sort of way. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's thousands of people saying this. Hosanna in the highest. It was loud. 65,000 people at Viking Stadium loud. You getting the picture? You've got to read scripture the way it's meant to be read. 
don't be mad at me about this stuff. So they're, they're crying out, uh, help, save us now. But the key phrase here, you know what the key phrase is? Not the Hosanna. We all land on the Hosanna. What's the key phrase? Just say it out loud. Who said that? Who said that? Son of David. That's the key phrase. Somehow, these pilgrims coming into Jerusalem at this high and holy event were connecting the theological and scriptural dots. Here comes this person on this donkey, Zechariah chapter 9. He's coming as the king of peace. He's coming as Messiah. And he's coming as the son of David. Can anyone off the top of your head just tell me what passage in the Old Testament are they referencing here? Anyone can... You'd really go into the bonus round. You get 100 bonus points. No. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. This is the passage they're referencing. And we're at chapter 6. to make sure I've got this right. Second Samuel, excuse me, chapter 7. Chapter 7, and it's verse 15. This is God speaking to David. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took him from Saul, whom I put away before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, this is God speaking to King David, your throne shall be established forever. Your throne shall be established forever. The crowds that day in Jerusalem, as they saw Jesus come in on that donkey, connected Jesus Christ to this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God was fulfilling a promise that he made to King David. Those of you who are uh, really into um, genealogies and stuff, in Matthew chapter 1, do you know who shows up in Jesus' genealogy? Just say it out loud. <laughs> I was leading the witness. King David. He's right there in the middle. He is the fulfillment of this ancient promise. Where am I going with this? All of God's promises... Are true. While God may take a while to bring his promises to fruition, this was made about 1000 BC, 1000 years later. Jesus coming into Jerusalem, he's fulfilling that promise. All of God's promises are yes. Where people get hung up with God's promises is they want them now. In my walk with Jesus Christ, which started in 1971, before many of you were born, I came to Christ in 1971. Here's what I can say with absolute certainty. God never shows up in the first hour when it comes to his promises. Oh, I wish he would. He comes at the 11th hour. He comes after I've been begging the Lord. Oh, Lord, please. Okay, I'm going to deliver on that promise. 
but you're going to have to wait. And there's something about the strengthening of our faith muscle that he likes to see happen in the life of his people. I say this wherever I go. God has made over 3,000 promises to his people. Can you name some of those promises? Those promises you've got to feast on. He's promised answered prayer. John 14, 14. Ask anything of my name and I will do it. He has promised his presence to superintend our life. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's just two out of 3,000. If I was to give you a challenge, the challenge is this. Learn the promises of God. Don't wait until it's foul weather to learn the promises. Learn the promises while it's good weather, because in the foul weather, you're going to draw upon those promises, and they will sustain you through the difficulties of your life. Jesus comes into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the messianic promises made thousands and thousands of years ago. We see all sides of the Savior. We see Jesus as the King of peace, Jesus as the prophetic King, Jesus as the King of promise. So now what do we do with it? Quickly. If you're exploring Christianity, the Lord Jesus invites you to himself. Jesus made this very profound statement in in John 10.10. I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. He wants everyone to experience the abundant life. But he calls you to repent and to believe. Follow him and never look back at your old way of life. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what is the application of these truths to your life? Here it is. The king is on his throne, and he is ruling your universe in undisturbed majesty. All life is under his authority. Rulers, kings, presidents, congress, planets, ecosystems, cells in our body are under his watchful eye. Therefore, as followers of Jesus Christ, you know where I'm going with this? We have nothing to fear. Nothing. He is on his throne of our life. We have nothing to fear. Let me close with a couple of of questions. Do I enjoy the king's reign in my life? Bible says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Second question, do I walk with my king by faith and not by sight? Second Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith and not by sight. If you're looking for a lot of visuals, you're not going to get them. You got to walk and you got to trust. Third question, do I seek first his kingdom and watch all these things added to me? Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. My British friend Larry said that when the king was away from the palace, the flag would fly half-mast. Our king is always on his throne. And the flag of his grace and mercy is waving to all sinners to come to him and to receive him and to live under his gracious rule. 
Psalm 2, verse 11 gives to us two diametrically opposed realities, but they come together when we worship Jesus Christ. We come before Jesus to rejoice with trembling. Heavenly Father, gracious Father, glorious King, thank you that you have fulfilled all that you promised through Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Nothing is missing, nothing is lacking, all is complete. And the work that King Jesus is doing in our life, while it's a progress and it takes time, there's no deficiency in what he's doing in our life. He's accomplishing exactly what he wants to accomplish. We rejoice in our great king. We rejoice with trembling. In Jesus' name, amen.